0: Luke chapter number 13 this morning, and I'd like to read the first nine verses, and then we'll pray and preach for a few moments. The Word of God says, There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell, and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. He spake also this parable, A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank You for the time You've given us. I pray, Father, that You would speak to hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit, that Your Word would penetrate those regions of our beings and ourselves that, Lord, uh, mere uh, morality cannot, that mere sermonizing cannot. Uh, that mere oratory cannot. Father, that you would do what is needful this morning in our midst. Lord, if there's any amongst us lost, show them their need of Calvary, Lord. Not just of a new leaf, but of a new life in your Son, Christ Jesus. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Luke chapter number 13, we have probably one of the most familiar portions of Scripture in the entire Word of God. In verse number 3 and in verse number 5, uh, this portion of Scripture has been quoted many times, been preached on many times. I probably won't tell you anything you don't know this morning, but I want to preach to you for a little while this morning on the doctrine of repentance. Repentance is not talked about in most churches today. Uh, The uh, prescribed means of dealing with sin in most churches in the days that we live in is to be permissive, to be tolerant, to ignore it, to look the other way. But the Word of God is clear that the only means, the only valid and effectual means of dealing with sin is repentance. Now, what does repentance mean? You've heard it said a hundred times, and I'd agree with it, that repentance means an about-face. In other words, it means you're headed one direction, you turn another direction. For the lost sinner, what that means, he's been dependent on himself. You know, every lost sinner really depends on themselves. They may not say that, they may not declare that, but they're assuming and implying by their actions that they think whatever they're relying on is good enough. Uh, the average person, if you ask them if they're a sinner, they'll say, well, sure, I'm a sinner, I sin like anybody else. If you ask them, do you believe you would go to hell when you die, they'd say, well, I don't think I'm that bad. The lost sinner is relying on his measuring, his determining, his opinion of what's good and what's bad. Sure, he's not perfect. Sure, he'll admit that he has faults and failures. Uh, But surely God wouldn't send him to hell. I've got news for you this morning, my friend. Uh, God doesn't send anyone to hell. He's done everything He could to keep people out of hell. When a person rejects the Lord Jesus Christ, they send themselves to hell. He sent His only begotten Son that you might be redeemed, that you might be born again, that you might be saved. He loved you enough that He sent Christ to Calvary's hill to bear your sin and to become your sin so that you could be born again. He loves you. He doesn't want to see you die and go to hell. The lost individual that thinks they're quote-unquote okay, when there's never been a time when they've recognized they're a sinner, never been a time when they've called upon Jesus Christ to forgive them and save them, they're assuming that their good works are enough. Maybe it's a matter of church membership. They're just assuming that their name is on some church roll uh, that that's good enough, that that's going to mean something. Uh, I'll, I'll clue you in on something, friend. Most churches don't even actually have a role. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, the, the, most of the roles we've got around here are the dinner roll kind, amen? And, uh, no, I mean, we do. We have records. We keep records. A lot of churches don't. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks think, well, because I've cast my lot in with this group or with that group, that means that I'm saved. That doesn't make you saved. Uh, We find that the only means of dealing with sin in the Word of God is the means of repentance. Repentance is something that is universal to every dispensation. Uh, There were times when uh, repentance was called for certain things and not for others, but you'll find that all through the Word of God, repentance was necessary for a man to be right with God. Uh, Even in the Garden of Eden, after they had sinned, you know what the first thing that God asked them was? Uh, He said, "'Where art thou, Adam?' Now, God knew where Adam was, but he wanted Adam to know where where Adam was." He wanted him to recognize where his sin had brought him. He said, who told thee thou wast naked? He wanted him to acknowledge the shame that he was feeling. And Adam, when he accepted those skins, he had to acknowledge that his righteousness was not enough. He had to acknowledge that his self-righteousness was not sufficient to cover his sins. He had to acknowledge that he was helpless and he needed the Lord to make the difference. Repentance has always been a uh, part of the formula for a person being right with God. Always a uh, part of the picture that's painted of redemption in the Word of God. Now, the context of the verse that we've read is presented to us in verse number 1. The Bible says there were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, they come to the Lord and they begin to tell him about all these people that got what they deserved. Now, you've heard people do that before, haven't you? You've heard people say, well, that happened to them because of the things that they've done wrong. And they came to the Lord and said, "'Lord, what do you think about those Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices?' We don't know everything of what happened, but we can sort of speculate and surmise some things. The book of Acts talks about a man called Judas of Galilee." And this Judas of Galilee had led sort of a grassroots movement uh, in Galilee to pull people away from paying taxes to the Roman government. Uh, no doubt Pilate, who was keenly aware of his standing and the insecurity of his standing with the Roman government, uh, very likely when he heard about this group that refused to pay taxes, that refused to comply with the iron fist of the Roman government, he came in and waylaid this group of people, killed them while they were making sacrifices. And they go to the Lord Jesus and they say, what about these people? What does this instance in their life tell us? And the Lord responds in a very unusual way. Now, no doubt they were trying to bait him. They did that all through Scripture, you know. They'd try to, try to ask these questions where they could trap him uh, in his own words. And I'm sure they were hoping that he would say, well, those Galileans were real wicked, that's why that happened. Then they could say, oh, the Son of God, he condemned some men above other men. Maybe they were hoping that he would say, well, Pilate had no business doing that. Then they could have ran to the Roman officials and said, this Jesus is questioning the authority of Pilate and of the Roman government. But that's not what the Lord said. Instead, what He does is poses a question to them concerning themselves. Let me say this, that's always what the Word of God does. We always have a desire to uh, shine the light on somebody else. We always have a desire to look at somebody else. Uh, we, you know, everybody that talks about not judging, you know they're usually the most judgmental ones. We always want to say, well, don't judge me. I can judge you, but you don't judge me. And uh, you don't judge anybody I like, but I can judge people that you like. And uh, I tell you, this judging things a two-edged sword. And that's what the Bible teaches, that with whatever measure you mete out judgment, it shall be meted out unto you. The righteous man judgeth all things. The spiritual man does. Uh, we're to judge righteous judgment. When we judge according to the Word of God, that's righteous judgment. We're judging the way that God judges. Now, that doesn't mean it's always our place to do so. But the righteous man, the spiritual man, he judgeth all things. So go ahead and just peg her down. Anybody that says, well, you know, the Bible says judge, not that you be not judged, chances are they've not opened that Bible in ten years. And they probably couldn't tell you where that verse is found. Beyond that, they couldn't explain what that verse means. So uh, they come to the Lord and say, well, what do you think about this? Now always, human heart always wants to shine the light on someone else. But the Lord says, I want to ask you a question about your heart. Now, let's look at a few things this morning. I don't know how long I'll preach. Uh, I know you're hoping not very long, and, and I may do that. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, I want you to notice this morning, first off, the assumptions of the self-righteous. Now, they begin with this question, but then the Lord looks into their heart, and He sees that some of them are pondering about another question, about a group of people upon which a tower fell. But I want to say, first off, in this first assumption... They looked at this group of Galileans that Pilate had fell upon and slain, and the assumption that they made was this, that conflict equates rebellion. In other words, these people got what was coming to them because they had committed these criminal activities. This was evidence of their sin, and they were judged accordingly. Can I say this this morning? Just because society legislates it, that doesn't make it okay. Okay. Now, we've said that for a lot of years about things, haven't we? Just because society legislates it, that doesn't make it okay. Can I go a step further and can I say this? And I think this is going to be a lot more important in the next 10, 15, 20 years if the Lord tarries. Just because society outlaws it, that doesn't mean it's not okay. In the New Testament, the apostles face this problem. And they determine this, that it's better to obey God than to obey man. Better to obey God than to obey man. Just because society condemns something, that doesn't make it wrong. Just because society condones something, that doesn't make it right. You see, the assumption that these people had was this. They met with this tragedy because they had sin in their lives. The Lord wants them to understand that whether or not these people were grand sinners or not, just because they were met with this conflict, that doesn't mean that the people standing in judgment are any better. Notice a second assumption that is made. Look down at, uh, let's see, I believe it's uh, verse number 4. Now, they didn't ask this, but the Lord knew they were going to. And He says this, "...or those eighteen upon whom the tower of Siloam fell, and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem." Now, this is a whole different kind of people. The first people were perceived as outsiders, fanatics, cultish They were these followers of Judas of Galilee. And so the mainstream were assuming that this fell upon them because they were outcasts. But the second group of people by the Tower of Siloam, we don't know a lot about what happened here. We sort of have to just trust the Lord's uh, statement about it. In fact, that's entirely what we have to do. Uh, But we do know that the Pool of Siloam is mentioned in John chapter number 5. And the Pool of Siloam was a place where those that were infirmed would come and uh, wait for the stirring of the waters, and go down into the waters, and whoever was the first into the waters would be healed. You say, Preacher, you believe that? Well, sure, I believe that. Sure, I believe that. I believe this, that when the great physician showed up, it didn't matter whether the uh, waters were stirred or not. But sure, I believe that. I believe that that took place. This was also a place where people would go and ceremonially uh, purify themselves, wash themselves. And very likely, this tower of Siloam probably fell, and the 18 people that were killed were probably there for that purpose. Siloam was not a very big area, it wasn't really a city, it was just a location there. And so the picture that we find in verse number 4 is of a group of infirmed but well-meaning people upon whom calamity comes. And let me say this, that the first assumption that they made was that conflict equates rebellion. The second assumption they made was that calamity equates retribution. You know, oftentimes we think this, and, and uh, listen, you know, as a preacher you deal with a lot of people, and you see people living right, and you see people living wrong. And oftentimes there is this assumption that when a person, when calamity strikes their life, it must be because of some unknown sin. That's what Job's friends thought. They spent thirty-something chapters trying to convince Job that he did everything wrong, and uh, they said, "Well, God's just, and He won't let this happen to you, except other, you know, unless there's sin in your life. And surely, Job, there's something you've been hiding." The assumption that these people have is that because of this calamity that has fallen, not at the hands of Pilate, not at the hands of some band of, of, of robbers, not at the hands of some murderous mob, but rather seems to just be an incident and an accident, something that has happened tragically, that this must be the divine hand of God. Let me say that there's been times that I have seen God deal heavy-handed with people. I have seen people in hospital beds, and it was because of their sin. I have seen times when people stood beside freshly dug graves. That person probably didn't have to be laying in that grave, except they were living in sin and refused to repent and turn. But that's not always the case. There's going to be times, and this isn't my message this morning, but, but I, I, I feel impressed to say this. The Bible says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy." You better be careful cataloging people's calamities into the category of retribution, or you may just have a few calamities come your way. You may have just a few calamities come your way. But there's a third assumption they were making, and it's this that I want to say a word about for a moment. The first assumption that they made was that conflict equates rebellion. And the second was that uh, calamity equates retribution. But the third assumption they made, and this is what Christ really deals with, is that comfort equates righteousness. You know what they were assuming? Bad things happen to bad people. And good things happen to good people. And since nothing bad has happened to me, I must be a pretty good person. It is in the context of this fallacy that Christ pierces through with this eternal truth That except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Can I say to you this morning just because things are going right, that doesn't make you right. Just because things are going well, doesn't mean your life's where it needs to be. I'm not here to, to be the judge this morning. You've got one that judgeth you. I'm not here to make a commentary about the way you're living or not living. But can I just say this, if you have this assumption that just because the bank account's full and the health is strong, and just because you got a roof over your head, and just because your circumstances are somewhat palatable, if you think that makes you right with God, you just may be sadly mistaken. I was reminded, and we talked about it a little bit this morning in, in Sunday school. We was talking about Dave Ramsey. And I won't talk about Dave Ramsey because some of you will get mad at me and, and you'll leave and everything. And, and we'll miss your tithes because you probably, you know, you're doing well if you're listening to Dave Ramsey. So. But uh, we, were t- we were talking about just sort of his philosophy and things like that. And we were talking about, you know, his, his mindset is you just you don't ever spend, there's, there is no excuse for you to ever have to spend anything. You don't even say, just steal before you spend. I mean, that's kind of his mindset. I told him, I said, it kind of reminds me of this guy I once heard of, that, you know, he had these barns and and he was blessed and he had a good crop and he filled up his barns. And then his barns got full and, and he didn't know what to do, so he tore those barns down, built bigger barns and filled those up. And he did that several times till finally he said, I've got enough. And he told his soul, he said, rest at ease. I was laid up much took care of for many years. Come think of that, that was in the Bible. And you know what God said about that man? He said, thou fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee. I'm here to serve notice, my friend. Just because everything's going well, that doesn't make you square with God. And their assumption was that because it happened to them, they were wrong. And because it hadn't happened to me, I'm right. There's not a single person in this room that isn't one phone call away from your world unraveling. Just a few missed heartbeats away from your, your life being done. You know, the Bible says that some men's sins are judged beforehand. Some men's go on before them. I, I believe God judges people. I believe that. I, that may not be the God that you like or prefer, or the, or the God that you've figured up in your mind, but the God of the Bible does judge people. There's no question. You say, well, God does, but Jesus doesn't. You hear people say it all the time. They'll say, well, you just ought to be like Jesus. He doesn't judge people. The Bible says that all judgment is committed under the Son. Yes, Who do you think sits on that great white throne from whose face heaven and earth will flee away? They'll say, well, just, just be like Jesus. Just don't ever judge. He never judged, right? You know? Man, this isn't my message, but it burns in my heart. And i got to say it. He said, you whited sepulchers. Boy, that's not kind language. Let me tell you something. Mr. Osteen stroke out over that. You generation of vipers was what he said. You whited sepulchers. You're beautiful and garnished on the outside, but within you're full of dead men's bones. He said that you can pass uh, earth and land uh, to, to, uh, to make a convert. And then he said you make him a twofold child of hell. I'd say that when he was dealing with self-righteousness, Christ judged very harshly. I'm thankful when he looked at the lost sinner. He said, any that come unto me, I will in no wise cast out. And when he was dealing with those that were aware of their unrighteousness, not self-aware of their false righteousness, when he dealt with those that were aware of their unrighteousness, oh, a bruised reed would he not break, and a smoking flax he would not quench. He dealt in compassion. Let me tell you something, and I... Lord, help me to say just exactly what needs to be said this morning. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of us that it's not a matter of a smoking flax. It's the fires of our own pride. And God will quench those. And there's a lot of us that it's not a bruised reed, but it's a rod of rebellion, and God will break that. God will do whatever it takes. He loves you enough to shake your world if He has to. But just because he hasn't, that doesn't mean you're okay. That doesn't mean you're okay. We see the assumptions of the self-righteous. Notice the answer of the Savior. Just a, a little phrase, but it's important enough that he repeated it twice. And notice what he says in it. He says in verse 3 and verse 5, both of them, he says, I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Now notice, let's break this apart. Can we do that? And let's notice what he says. Notice first off the correction of their reasoning. He says, you think that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans. And you think that these that were by the Tower of Siloam were sinners above everyone in Jerusalem. And with one little word, he unravels their reasoning and he says, nay, no, no, that's not so. He says this didn't happen to them because they were grand and and, and awful and the chiefest of sinners. He does not go into the reasons why it happened. You know why? Because those reasons aren't important, known only to God. But what He does when they seek to shine the spotlight on those who have experienced calamity and tragedy, is He turns it around and shines it on them and says this basically. Are you ready? He says, they were no worse than you. They were no worse than you. I'm glad when God saves a man, He makes him a new person, aren't you? Man, I'm glad for that. But can I tell you something? Your flesh is just as wicked and rotten today as it was on the worst day of your life when you was lost in your darkness and in your sin. Your flesh is still just as rotten and wicked. The flesh can't be saved. It can't be sanctified. It can't be regenerated. The new man can. But the flesh is destined for death. Destined for death. We talked about that this morning in Sunday school in Colossians chapter 3. Paul said, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. You're dead. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means that your flesh, that the old man is sentenced to death. It's done. It's over with. There's nothing. You, you can paint it up. You can dress it up. You can try to make it proper. You can try to make it acceptable. It's still just as wicked and as rotten as it ever was. And let me tell you something. There's not a single thing that a sinner out here, the worst one on death row, has done. But what you, if the grace of God was absent from your life, but what you do that very thing, I know you say, no, preacher, not me. I, I was raised good. I, I, I've grown up in church. I, I, I've got good parents. There's no telling how many people are laid up on death row right now that have done things that would make your skin crawl, that were raised in good homes, that have sat in Sunday school, that have been raised in church. But they've got a wicked flesh just like you've got a wicked flesh. And the assumption was this. Because these calamities have befallen them, they must be bad. And because I'm doing okay, I must be okay. The Lord says, no, no. We see the correction of their reasoning. Notice the second thing. We see a call to repentance. So he establishes this fact. You're just as wicked as they are. I know that's not real good encouraging. You know, I mean, that don't, that, that don't build churches real big. I know that when you say that, but, but that's the truth. I'd rather have a little built on the truth than a lot built on a lie. And that's the truth. And then he tells them how to deal with that problem. I'm glad the Lord doesn't just hang us out there with a problem and no answer. He shows that to us. He says, no, your reasoning is wrong. You're just as wicked as them. But how do you deal with that? He says this, except ye repent. Repent. Again, I'll say it. To repent is a 180 degree turn. Repentance is not, uh, just when the, when the drunkard pours out his booze, uh, and, and I still believe that the drunkards ought to pour out their booze, uh, it's, and I still believe that the drunkards ought to pour out their booze. Still believe that. More than that, God still believes that. God still believes that. It's not just when the dope head throws away his dope. It's not just, all those things are indicative, but that's not the substance. It's greater than that. It's greater than that. Just as faith is not an activity, but rather an attitude of the heart. You believe that, don't you? Faith is not an activity. It's an attitude of the heart. We effectually trust God. But faith without works is dead. So true biblical faith will produce works. There's no question. But the faith itself is an attitude of the heart. And repentance is the same way. Repentance is the attitude of the heart to say this. My way is wrong. God's way is right. Sin is wrong. Sin is wrong. I I, I don't need to partake in it anymore. I'm glad that repentance is not a promise I'm never going to do anything wrong again. Because if that's what repentance was, I, I mean, it wouldn't do a lick of good for any of us to repent. It's not a promise, say, Lord, I'm never going to make a mistake. What it is, is to call sin what sin is, and to say, Lord, I know and I'm willing to quit going that way and start going this way. I'm going to quit living a life unchecked by the Word of God uh, that, that is unrestrained by the teachings of grace and truth. Everybody talks about grace. We love grace, don't we? We love grace. Can I tell you, there's such thing as cheap grace in modern churches. Grace, listen, grace does not take 1 John 1, 9 and make it the kitchen sink. Do you know 1 John 1, 9? That may be why you're looking at me like that. I don't know. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm glad that's true. I believe that, friend. I mean I believe it with my whole heart. But what? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. God forbid that we should do such a thing. Biblical grace does not take first John 1 9 and use it as a license to sin. That's cheap grace. That's grace that does not take into consideration all that Christ paid when He died for our sins. You know what real biblical grace does? The grace of God teacheth us that, uh, li- uh, that, that denying ourselves, denying ourselves and living righteously and godly in this present world, that's what real biblical grace does. It changes a man's life. And true repentance always walks in accordance with true grace. It'll admit and acknowledge what I've been doing is wrong and I don't need to live that way anymore. That's the only way to deal with sin. Sin is not dealt with by ignoring it. I know we'd all like that. We all assume we ignore it, it'll go away, but that's not how sin's dealt with. That may square you with your friends, that may square you with your family, it may square you with your church family, but if you want to get things right with God, you must repent. You must repent. You must acknowledge that what you've done is wrong, confess that to God, and purpose in your heart by His grace to do better and to turn from it. You must do that. That's ne- that's necessary. This isn't just, hey, preacher needed something to preach on today, so he came up with this. Christ said, except ye repent. Right. Except ye repent. He didn't say, well, except you repent, unless you really you could go to church, you'd get baptized... You could uh, go buy your King James Bible and, and uh, you know, go, go get your hair the way they want it done, your clothes the way they want it done, and really dress yourself up. That's not what it says. It's not what it says. And I'm, I'm not criticizing any of those things. I'm just saying that's not enough. You can do all those things and still not be right with God. He said, except you repent. Except you repent. And then we see a caution against rejection. He says, ye shall all likewise Perish. Perish. Now, I'm aware that there is a very, very distinct biblical context here that deals with the Jewish people and the Jewish nation. And they had this assumption as a people that, that God was, was purging sinners out of their midst through that, and they weren't, part of, they, they weren't a part of that. They weren't sinners. And Christ is telling them this as a nation, that you must repent. If you don't turn towards me, there's going to be some things that happen. Uh, For instance, they, they wouldn't benefit the kingdom at that particular time, and they didn't repent, and that didn't happen. Uh, they, the uh, Romans would trod them underfoot, and so on and so forth. I mean, there are some very distinct contextual things that Christ is talking about. But can I, can I just say this? I don't think it's stretching truth to understand that there is an application of this to the salvation of the sinner and also to the Christian life of the believer. God's good to us. He's really good. He's so long-suffering. I wouldn't put up with me half as much as God puts up with me. That's the truth. I wouldn't put a listen now. Oh boy. I don't know. Are you ready? I don't know how you're going to receive what I'm about to say. I wouldn't put up with my spouse the way God puts up with me. And she wouldn't put up with me the way God puts up with me. If I was if I was as unfaithful to my spouse as I am to my God, our marriage would be over like that. I'm just being truthful. I know. You come in, you wanted one of them plastic preachers. You know, but you didn't get it. It's not what you've got. You've got one made of flesh and bone that's weak, that fails, that is flawed, that fails God on a regular basis. I'm so glad He's long-suffering. But can I say this? The long-sufferingness of God does have a limit. It does. You say, really? Oh, yeah. Read, read about the nation of Israel. You know what? You know what the Lord said about the nation of Israel, and I believe it was the Book of Hosea says that their that their wound was so bad there was no remedy. They had crossed that hidden line, known only to the Almighty mind of God between God's mercy and God's wrath, and He said, "Ephraim's joined the idols. Leave her alone. Leave her alone." And so we have an illustration of this in this next few verses, and I, I'm just going to give them to you quick and then be done. I want you to notice, we see not only the assumptions of the self-righteous and the answer of the Savior, but notice the application of the story he's about to tell. Now, this is all part of one narrative. In fact, I was going—I was joking with my wife last night because I was just going to preach on the first five verses. Now, think about that. If I'd done that, you'd be headed to Shoney's, you know? But as I read, I, I was struck by by the inclusion of this parable. I mean, you, you can't, if you read this honestly, you have to see that this parable is a part of this narrative. And so I told her, I said, I'm only going to preach two points tomorrow. And she looked at me like she didn't believe me. And I said, I am. And then sure enough, I. she's right a lot of the time. You know, I found that to be so easy now. So we see an application of this parable that's given. And I want you to listen carefully to it. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? So the owner of the vineyard, his long-sufferingness has passed. But through the pleading of the dresser of the vineyard, and by the way, I, I, I think, well, I'm not going to get into it. There's a lot of beautiful truth here. Who's, who's the husbandman? Who's the husband? And, and who's the one that prunes and dresses the vineyard? Aren't you thankful we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous? He says this, And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. So he tells this parable to illustrate this truth, and I want to point out three things. I want you to notice first off the planting and possessing of this vineyard. You see, this vineyard owner had a right to do this because he was just that. He was the owner of the vineyard. He had planted this vine, and this vine belonged to him. Can I say to you this morning, you belong to God. You're His property. I know we live in a day where we don't ever say anybody's, anybody's, I mean, I get that, I understand. That's so politically incorrect, I mean, oh my. But let me tell you something, you belong to God. like it or lump it, my neighbor, you belong to Him. You're His. If you draw breath, it's because He allows it. I know we don't like that, and trust me, there's an element of of me that doesn't like that. I mean, my flesh kicks against that. It, my flesh hates that. My flesh wants to say, I'm my own man. I'm the master of my destiny. But it's just not true. It's just not true. You know, I can shake my fist at God all I want. It won't change things. I don't, I don't draw a breath except He allows me to. I don't, there's not a single thing in my life that, that takes place, but, but He gives it permission to do so. There's not a benefit or blessing I enjoy, but it's come from Him. I belong to Him. He has planted me. He possesses me. Then I want you to notice, we see not only the planting and possessing of this vine, but I want you to notice next the pruning and probation of this vine. So you belong to the Lord. I belong to the Lord. We're here for His glory, not for our glory. Uh, We're here for His good, not for our good. Now, I'm thankful He sees after our good. but, But we're not to see after our good. He's to see after. Uh, There's a lot of uh, self-improvement mentality in in today. Uh, Can I tell you something? You don't have the wherewithal to make yourself what you need to be. Only by the grace of God can you become what the Lord wants you to be. Uh, So He'll look after our good, but we're here for His good. We're not here for our pleasure, we're here for His pleasure. The vineyard's not growing for its own pleasure, it's growing for the pleasure of the husbandman and the one that owns it. So He comes to it three years in a row. Three years in a row. Now, most of us, if you're like me, I, you know, I, I hate to mow around anything. Somebody witness to that. I knew Dad would. <laughs> I hate to mow around anything. I don't care what you... I, I, I mean, we don't, we're don't. we getting ready to buy this house and it's got a big yard. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it'll be a bone of contention. My wife tries to plant anything. Unless it's in a garden, I'll mow over anything. I'll mow over an oak tree. If I think I can cut through it, if I think I can, I'll do it. If it had been me after that first year. That fig tree would have been gone. I would have come to him and said, there's not a, there's not a fig on this thing. And cut it down. Let alone a second year, and even a third year. But after three separate years, three separate times of that husband coming and looking, finding no fig tree, finally he says to one of his workers, he says, there's no point in it. Cut it down. And I hope the Holy Ghost will say this in the right way to your heart but you reach a place in your Christian life where you're not doing anything other than cumbering the ground, God will take you out of this world. Call me, listen, call me a nut, call me a fanatic. I've been called everything and worse. But that's the that's truth. There is a sin unto death. And there are certain that we do reach a place where we do more harm to the name of Christ than we do good for the name of Christ. People say all the time. My, my, my preacher used to say about Ananias and Sapphira. You remember Ananias and Sapphira, uh, and God, you know, God struck them dead. And, and my, my preacher used to always say, "Well, I'm glad that God doesn't strike people dead for lying today. Nobody'd be left alive. Uh, and that's true. But but God didn't strike everyone dead that lied back then either. You know why God struck Ananias and Sapphira dead? Because they made up their mind they could lie to the Holy Ghost. And at that point, God couldn't deal with them anymore. Let me tell you something, the only means God has of dealing with us is the Word of God applied by the Holy Ghost. When when we're comfortable with hypocrisy, it's all downhill from there. When we're we're willing to lie to God, here, here in a little while, we're going to have an invitation. And you're going to have a choice. Everybody in this room, if God has touched on your heart, you'll have a choice. And there's, it's amazing how argumentative we get during the invitation. Because we'll sit there, man, and the Spirit of God will pierce our heart for 20, 30 minutes. We all know it's longer than that. but <laughs> And then invitation comes and we say, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm all right. Lord, all those things you said to me, I, I, I'm okay. I'm all right. There's nothing wrong with me. When you get to where you'll lie to the Holy Ghost, there ain't much left for you. So he said, cut it down, it cumbereth the ground. But an advocate came and said, give it another year, give it another year. And so a probation time was instituted. And God, I believe, is teaching us that, that there are some things that will enter our life oftentimes as God is trying to get our attention. Because here we see the, the proving and the perishing of this fig tree. He says this, give me another year, and I'll dig about it, and I'll dung it. You know what I mean, right? Okay. In other words, he's going to fertilize it, put manure around it. He said, and then in another year, if it doesn't grow anything, we'll cut it down. I, I'm not the Holy Ghost. I'm glad I couldn't do it. But, but I, I'm, I'm not the Holy Ghost. The Spirit of God has to speak to your heart and tell you what's, what's going on in your life. But I do believe there are periods of time when God is trying to get our attention. And He either will or He won't. And the proof is in the change that takes place. The proof is in the change that takes place. Let me tell you something. If you won't get serious with God, there ain't much help for you. There ain't much help for you. If God can't even get you serious, what can get you serious? If, if God can't even get you to see that this thing's not a game, this is real. This is not a game. Your, your soul is eternal, and it will be somewhere eternally, either in heaven or in hell. And when, you know what Christ said about the, or what Abraham said to the rich man that was in hell? He said, Listen, why don't you send Lazarus back to preach to my five brethren? You know what he said? He said, He has the law and the prophets. Let them hear them. The Word of God can't do the work in your heart. Nothing can do the work in your heart. The Spirit of God can't. If you're to the place where you're so hardened, you say, well, you know, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart before God ever hardened it. The Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Then after that, God hardened it. He made the choice. He made the decision. And when we get to the place where we'll harden our heart, and say, I'm going to live the way I'm going to live, no matter what anybody thinks or says, then more often than not, God will let you go that direction until He finally just has to cut you down. I know it's not popular. But there's probably half the people in here thinking, that preacher up there is a nut. He's, he's a fearmonger. Hey, you call me whatever you want. But I'm giving you biblical truth this morning. We all have a window of time. And we're going to do something with it. We're either going to waste it or we're going to use it. So the question this morning is, will you use it? Is God speaking to your heart? Has He put His finger on something, said, this is sin, get it right. If He has, the only way to deal with it is to repent, to ask His forgiveness and to turn from it. Call it what you want, friend, it's biblical. And if God's touched your heart this morning, I hope that you'll respond to Him.